In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We will study today chapter 18 from the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Uh, the main points of this chapter is the need for humility and the concern for others in the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom here refers to the church, the kingdom of Christ. Also another point in this chapter, how to deal with a sinning brother. When a brother sins against me, how I deal with this, and the importance of forgiveness. <coughs> we can divide the chapter into five sections. The first section is greatness in the kingdom, the church, defined as humility, from verse 1 to 5. Then from verse 6 to 9, the Lord Jesus Christ warns of offenses. Then from verse 10 to 14, the parable of the lost sheep. From verse 15 to 20, how to deal with a sinning brother. And the last part of the chapter from verse 21 to 35, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Uh, this chapter, some words were repeated more than one time. For example, the word ch child and children was repeated several times. The word causes sin also was repeated several times. And the word little ones and heavenly fathers also repeated several times. And we will explain the meaning of these words, what children means, what little ones means, what the Lord meant by the word causes sin, we will explain all of this. So let's start reading from verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. In this Five verses, the word kingdom of heaven was repeated. They perceived the Lord Jesus Christ 
and the Messiah and the King and he is coming to restore the earthly kingdom of David so when the disciples asked the Lord Jesus Christ uh, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven actually they were referring to his kingdom here on earth because uh, they supposed in accordance with the common expectation of the Jews that the Lord Jesus Christ <coughs> will set up a kingdom on earth of great splendor <coughs> so they wished to have uh, offices of honor in this kingdom but maybe somebody will ask me but they used the word kingdom of heaven yes kingdom of heaven because this kingdom will be established by God they believed that king was anointed the king are anointed by God and actually this was the ritual in the Old Testament King David was anointed by Samuel so kingdom of heaven means the earthly in their mind the earthly kingdom that God of heaven will establish on earth the earthly kingdom the kingdom of David that God is establishing but indeed God is establishing a kingdom on earth but this kingdom is the church which is the icon of heaven so the discrepancy here they are expecting earthly kingdom you remember on Hosanna Sunday they said Hosanna in the highest this is the king of Israel but the kingdom of Christ is actually the church this question who will be the greatest in the kingdom was a frequent subject of inquiry and controversy you remember when the mother of John and James brought her two sons to the Lord Jesus Christ and told him I want my children to be on your right hand and in your, on your left hand in your kingdom many times in Mark chapter 9 verse 34 in Luke chapter 9 verse 47 uh, we read about how this question was mentioned among them who will be greatest in Luke they don't speak it out loud but God actually knew their thoughts which implies God's omniscience he, he knew what they were thinking about so God in order to teach them a lesson he brought a little child and the holy tradition tells us this little child became Ignatius the martyr the disciple of Saint John the Baptist, sorry, Saint John the theologian, Saint John the beloved. He is one of uh, who preaches in Antioch. That's why all the patriarch 
of Antioch, they had their first St. Ignatius. For example, now his holiness, uh, Mar Ignatius Ephraim. And before him, Mar Ignatius Zakka. And before him, Mar Ignatius uh, Ya'ub. Because St. Ignatius, the martyr, is the one actually who founded the, the church in Antioch. But he is the disciple of St. John the Theologian, and the whole tradition tells us that the child whom the Lord Jesus Christ brought into the midst was St. Ignatius. And he became a martyr, that's why he is called Ignatius the Martyr. So the Lord brought this child in the midst and told them, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted, and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Converted is deeper than changed or turned. This actually verb means to change or to turn from one habit of life or set of opinions to another. Converted means you are wholly changed from one direction to another direction. So the Lord told us to be like little children. In what? The children are humble. They are learnable. You can teach them. They are free from selfish ambition. So, the Lord is saying to us, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to be converted, change it to be like one of these little children. If you remember the conditions of discipleship in Matthew chapter 16, the Lord spoke about we should deny ourselves and follow him. So by saying converted and be like little children is expansion on the teaching, on the condition of discipleship. To be like children. Children actually, especially little children when they are young, they do not desire authority. They do not regard outward distinction. They are free from malice teachable and learnable, and willingly dependent on their parents. So God is telling us, if you want to be a member in the kingdom of heaven, you need to have these qualities of little children. So we can here see the disparity between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdoms of the world. In the kingdom of Christ, there is no way to be elevated to place of honor except by humility of mind and continual self-denial and self-abasement. So in the kingdom of Christ, greatness is not secured 
by seeking to be the greatest. So God actually brought Ignatius here as a model to imitate. But in verse 5, Christ is using this child as center of action. When he told them, Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So, here God is not speaking about children. If you receive little children, you are receiving me. But actually, he is referring to any person lives like little children. To any disciple of Christ who in humility accept the non-status of a little child. And therefore, he is living in the imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, when you receive this person as if you received Christ himself, if you receive a Christ-like disciple, like an apostle or a servant, you are receiving Christ himself. That's why we need on a daily basis to be renewed in the spirit of our mind that we may become simple, harmless, and humble as little children, willing to be the least of all and the last of all. In the discourse of our Lord Jesus Christ, he spoke a lot about his suffering, but one time he spoke about his glory. The disciples actually were focused on his glory, his words in glory, and they overlooked his words on suffering. They wanted to participate in his glory, but not in his suffering. They wanted to be with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, but not in Gethsemane and Golgotha. Many of us want to be glorified with Christ, but we refuse to suffer with Him. Many love to hear and speak about privileges and glory, but we don't want to pay attention to carrying our cross, or working, or striving, or struggling, or go through troubles for the name of Christ. Verse 6. The Lord actually continued and said, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he will drown in the depth of the sea. So the Lord now is speaking about a related topic. These little children are simple, harmless, and humble. Some people 
may take advantage of their simplicity and humbleness. And they cause them to sin. They offend them. That's why the Lord told us, a great punishment will be awaiting those who causes these little children to sin. And by the word little ones or little children, he is not speaking about children young in age, but speaking about all lowly and humble disciples. All lowly and humble disciples. He said it is better that a millstone is hung around his neck and he was drowned in the depth of the sea. Mills anciently were either turned by hand or by beasts, chiefly by mules. The original word actually refers to this larger kind that was turned by mules. So the original word millstone here denotes that it was this kind that was intended. And this was one mode of capital punishment practiced by the Greeks, Syrian, Romans and other nations. They used to hang a millstone, huge millstone, in the neck of a person and drown him in the sea as one model of uh, one mode of capital punishment. So the message here, the Lord is saying, it's better that a man loses his life in so terrible way than to destroy the souls of others. It's better for a man to lose his life than to offend one of these little humble believers. Then the Lord said in verse 7, Woe to the world because of the offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. The word woe here is used by our Lord Jesus Christ to express sympathy and concern about how the world will be full of offenses. It is an expression of grief. And the judgment that the Lord Jesus Christ pronounced against those who causes his believers to stumble into sin or to lose their faith is found also in two other references in Mark chapter 9 verse 42 and in Luke chapter 17 verse 2. And the judgment imagery of a millstone being thrown into the sea this also found in Revelation chapter 18, verse 21 and 22. And this scenario brings also to our mind the fate of the swine 
possessed by demons. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 32, how they were thrown into the sea and were drowned there. Such ultimate destruction is the judgment awaiting all unrepentant sinners who add to human suffering. So the world is warning us here that there will, be, there will continue to be temptations and causes of stumbling in the world, which unfortunately will lead thousands astray and causes much sorrow. So we need to be watchful. We need to be diligent, lest we become offended with all these offenses around us. When the Lord said the offenses must come, doesn't mean, and we should not suppose, even for a moment, that it is Christ who subject human action to these offenses. It's not his foreknowledge or prediction that causes these evils to take place. So, I can say these offenses do not happen because Christ foretold them, but it is the opposite. Christ foretold them because they would happen eventually. Who brings offenses to the world? It is Satan. Considering the cunning and malice of Satan and the weakness of human hearts, it's not possible, but there should be offenses. But be of good cheer. Christ, our God, defeated the world and overcame the world. And Christ is willing to use these offenses for our goodness at the end. So, yes, God permits them, but He will change the situation for wise and holy ends, that those who are sincere and faithful to God may be made known. For example, we learn about how people, good people and godly people, benefited from the offenses, made them more diligent, more watchful. Think about Job the righteous, Joseph in the house of Potiphar, and many others perfected in temptation, how these great men, during the time of temptation, they actually became more diligent and more watchful. So if anybody was harmed by the evil, it is because of our own laziness. Because we did not call on Christ to be with us during the time of temptation. Verse 8 If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. 
It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. So the same words are repeated here on occasion of offenses. They are the same words that the Lord spoke in the Sermon on the Mountain in Matthew chapter 5 verse 29 when he spoke about unchaste looks, desires and lusts. So, causing others to sin is equally like satisfying the desires of the flesh. Offending one of the humble and simple believers, it's exactly like satisfying your own lusts, the desires of the flesh. That's why they receive the same a punishment, eternal punishment. And the message here, the Lord did not mean literally to take away or block out our eyes or to cut off our hand or our feet. But the message here, if an object dear as the right eye and useful as the right hand lead you to sin, that object, however dear, we must quit it and renounce it sooner than remain in the occasions of offending God. Many times I say to those who suffer from pornography, I tell them, if God told you Block out your eyes or cut off your hand. Maybe you need to disconnect the internet completely in order to be able to overcome this addiction to pornography. And when you need to use the internet, maybe you can go to a public library just to finish your homework or whatever you need to do and go home. We need actually to be serious in dealing with those offenses. We should not say, I have excuse, they offended me. No, you don't. You don't have excuse. Whatever offends you, actually keep it away from you, regardless how dear it is or how much you need it. We need actually to be serious about this. So, the Lord is saying, Sin not only causes others to stumble into sin and brings suffering to the world, but we should avoid sin at all costs because sin can ultimately lead to eternal death in hell. That's why he said, remove your eye, cut off your hand, it's better than to be cast into the everlasting fire.
Then the Lord said, But these little ones who are offended, I will search for them. I will look for them. So again, these little ones will not have excuse in the judgment day by saying, I was humble and simple, and that's why people offended me, and that's why I'm lost. The Lord will tell him, but I counteracted this by searching for you, like a good shepherd searching for the lost sheep. But you refuse to return it back with me. So here, yes, offenses must come, but the counteraction is the uh, shepherdhood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why in verse 10 he said, Take heed another warning, that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. So he's saying, yes, you may offend them, but another warning, you should know that their angels all the time are standing and pleading their cause before your Heavenly Father. And I came specifically to the world to seek such lost sheep. And here actually is the dogma of the guardian angels. When the Lord said, their angels, because every one of us has an angel, a guardian angel. And this guardian angel <coughs> report our case to, to God and also intercede on our behalf. So the word little ones or little children again refers to all the believers in Christ with humble and lowly heart. This term was used several times in the Gospel of Mark, Luke, in the Gospel of St. John, also in the letters of St. John. He used several times, he referred to the believer like little children. So, this term, little children, is not referring to children of young age, but referring to the believers whom the world regards as insignificant and unimportant. Insignificant and unimportant. So the Lord told us here, do not despise them. Don't look down upon them. Don't neglect them. Because their angels are standing before God all the time. And here is the doctrine of angel, angels, the Lord Jesus Christ is emphasizing in his teaching, especially the doctrine of the guardian angel. And see here the comparison between how the world regards these little ones, the world despises them, but God honors them. Because the world looks outwardly, but God looks inwardly. 
these little ones, they have angels constantly pleading their cause in the divine presence. These little ones, they have their advocates in heaven, the angels, accusing those who offer offend them or offer them any injury or harm. And another reason why we should not despise them, because the Son of Man came to seek and save them. He came to search for them, and He found them. He redeemed them. So, if the whole object of the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry is to save the lost, take heed lest by causing offenses, you lose the saved. If God's ministry is to save the lost, when we cause offenses or cause them to sin, actually we are losing the saved. But again, these little ones, they will not have an excuse that they were offended, that's why they were lost, because God is searching for them. That's why in verse 12, the Lord gives them the parable of the lost sheep, saying, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray because of offenses, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that's straying? And if you should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over the sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Some of the church fathers said the one sheep is all mankind, and the ninety-nine are the angels in heaven. So, he left the ninety-nine who do not need salvation and came down upon the earth to save by his death what was lost. When he said, what do you think? So, this illustration of an anxiety of the shepherd for the lost sheep is used to show the deep interest that God feels in any one of the straying little ones. So if anyone goes astray because of offenses, God is so interested to bring him back. And we as some school servants, we should have the same interest in searching for the lost sheep. A similar parable was mentioned in Luke chapter 15, verse 3. But it was uh, largely expressed there. And the shepherd, as the Lord Jesus Christ said, rejoices over the recovery of one of his flock that has wandered more than over all that remained, the ninety-nine sheep, all the heavenly angels who did not need salvation. So God rejoices that man is restored. So he seeks his salvation and wills that not one thus 
found should perish. Not one from those who save those whom he saved should perish. And if God thus loves and preserves the redeemed, then surely man should not despise them. And I want you to notice that in verse uh, 13 he said, and if he should find it, if he should find it. It is interesting to note that verse 13 suggests that the lost are not always returned to the flock. That's why he said, and if he finds it. Many lost sheep refuses to return with the shepherd. Verse 14, Even so, it is not the will of your Father, who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. It's not the will of God that one of these little ones should perish. St. Peter, in his second letter, chapter 3, verse 9, he said, Why God is delaying his return? Why he did not come in his second coming? He is giving us opportunity to repent and to return the back with our shepherd. So, we should be assured that God is seeking our salvation, wants to restore us, waiting for our return, no matter what. So if any soul be finally lost, it is not because of God's will, or because God had counseled against its salvation, or it is because a proper provision had not been made for it. But why a person is lost? Because when Jesus, the light of the world, came into the world, he pre this person preferred the darkness over light because of his attachment to the evil deeds of the darkness. In this parable of the lost sheep, the Lord Jesus Christ is using a metaphor common to the Old Testament prophets. The image of a shepherd was repeated several times in the Old Testament. In Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 95, verse 7. In Jeremiah, chapter 23. In Ezekiel, chapter 34. In all these passages, God actually depicted himself as a shepherd and who are his flock. So the Lord Jesus Christ used the same imagery in his discourse on the last judgment. In Matthew 25, when he said, He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left hand. Also in Matthew 26, when he warned the apostles of their crisis, when he is arrested, he used the metaphor of sheep and shepherd. Struck the sheep, and the, struck the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. 
Also when he spoke about his pastoral care, he said, I am the good shepherd, as we read in John chapter 10. Then the Lord is said, what should we do if somebody offended me? If somebody sinned against me, what I should do? Verse 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So in these verses the Lord is saying that there are four steps when somebody sins against me. The first step, I should go to my brother. Brother means a believer here. I should go to the brother who sinned against me and privately, between him and I only, I tell him his fault. And this, this was required under the law of Moses as we read in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 17. If he listens and we are reconciled, great. But if he does not listen, then I will take with me two persons. So I approach him for the second time and take two persons in order to have witnesses to the discussion. And this was based on Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. The third step, if he refuses to listen or to correct his ways, the, then I will take the problem to the church. So I will not jump to the church from the first step. I should go to him between him and I privately, then take two witnesses, then I go to church. Church means here clergy. And if he refuses to listen to the church, then the person is to be considered outside the assembly of the believers, outside the fellowship, like a heathen or a tax collector. And here he is speaking about, as I told you, clergy, ecclesiastical assembly, because afterward he spoke about the power of losing and binding which belong to the church only. So if somebody sinned against you, you should not complain to others, but you should go to him privately and discuss the matter between you and him. Actually, this would generally have all the desired effect with a true Christian and the parties would be reconciled. So if we do it sincerely, actually would be reconciled from the first step. But if the other person denies the fact, or find an excuse, or defend it, or he is stubborn to repent, actually uh, I will give him another chance, but in the second chance 
I will take with me one or two persons. Maybe members of the church, members who are of weight, reputation, character, maybe those who know something about the matter discussed, so they can confirm by their testimony what happened, again in order to bring reconciliation and peace between two parties. If, so the goal here is to gain, to win the brother, not to condemn him and not to revenge. And by the way, this is the second time here when the Lord said, if he doesn't listen, go to the church. This was the second time the word church is mentioned. First time was in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when the Lord said, upon this rock I will build my church. Uh, the church here means the clergy, and they have power to admonish and to exclude, to lose and to bind. And if the church excommunicated this person, then we will have no religious fellowship with him. We will deal with him like a heathen or a publican. But here we can see that to separate a believer, to excommunicate a believer, is the last measure to attempt to bring that person back into communion. So, when the church excommunicates somebody, in the mind of the church, using this tool to bring him back, maybe when he's punished, he will repent. Like what happened with the sinner at the church of Corinth, we read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, from verse 1 to 5. And St. Paul excommunicated the sinner. But why? He said, in order to save the soul in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Also, in the letter of St. Paul to Rome and to Thessalonica, he warned the faithful concerning members of community have gone astray into either false teaching or immoral behavior. Then after the Lord spoke about these four steps, he gave them the power to lose and to bind. As we read in verse 18, As shortly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be lost in heaven. Again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. The power of finding and losing is promised to the apostles and their successors. And the Lord, after his resurrection in John chapter 20, he gave them the Holy Spirit and did not only give them the power to lose and bind, but also to back the power to forgive sins and to retain sins. So here, not only Peter has the keys, but all 
the apostles and their successors had the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So the apostles, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, established the rules of the church, the rule of discipline, announced the condition of salvation by the gospel. These rules and conditions also found in the book of Acts and the epistles, rules of binding and losing. And the word, if two of you, many church fathers said it's referred to the clerical council or ecclesiastical council. So, as if the Lord, he said, when you excommunicate somebody, in order to avoid any mistakes, should not be done by one person, it's better if it's done through a council. And if two or three are gathered, then Christ will be with them. So this judgment will be made by God. But also, if two or three refers to public prayers, as you know, when you pray, there is personal prayers, there is family prayer, and also there is public prayers. When we pray together in the spirit of fellowship, definitely God will hear and listen to our prayers. This assurance is found in the fact that Christ will be present. If two or three gathered in his name, he will be in their midst. To be in their midst means he's listening and doing the best. So their united prayers will ascend and made mighty by the intercession of the Son of God who is present among them. So by his presence, it becomes his prayer, because he is now praying with us. And if this is prayer, then it's might before the Father. His promise, I will be in their midst, is similar to the word Emmanuel, God is with us. And also similar to his promise before his ascension. Behold, I am with you always until the end of the ages. Then Peter came to him, verse 21, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. So, after the Lord spoke about how important to seek reconciliation with those who sin against me, there was some doubt in the mind of Peter. So, he asked his question about how far this principle should be carried, up to seven times. Here we should not understand these numbers 
7 or 7 times 70 in a literal way. These numbers have symbolic value. 7 is a number of perfection, fulfillment and completion. So the Lord did not mean after 490 times don't forgive. But the Lord here saying we must forgive to the end. We must not take revenge regardless how many times my brother sins against me. And in order to recommend this great virtue more forcefully, he actually gave us this parable of the unforgiving servant. And we can see here how the king became so harsh with this servant with unforgiving spirit. To imply how rigid will be our heavenly father to those who do not forgive even their enemies. So the Lord gives them this parable. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king, our Lord Jesus Christ, who wanted to settle account with his servants, us. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So the king is the Lord Jesus Christ. The servants here are those who professed to serve him, the faithful, the believer, and the kingdom is his church on earth. The talent, how much is the talent equal to US dollars? There are several ways to actually calculate this. The talent was a weight, not a coin. Weight. And its value would depend on the purity of the precious metal used in the coinage. So if Greek silver talent is meant so, the 10,000 talent mentioned here would be about 7 millions and 500,000, 7.5 millions US dollars. So, what's meant is that the sum was beyond the human ability to pay. This servant cannot pay that amount of money. Who is this servant? It's each one of us who are indebted to our Lord Jesus Christ. But when we come asking forgiveness in spirit of repentance, when we ask for his mercy and forgiveness, he would forgive us. He would forgive us. So, we read here Verse 25, but as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. In the Divine Liturgy we say, we were sold on account of our sins. It was a common practice to 
sells a person for his debt to be a slave. And in many nations, not only the person, but also his wife and children were involved in the unfortunate fate of the debtor. So this is the wages of sin, to be sold as a slave. But the servant, verse 26, therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Of course, he cannot pay it all. So this promise was one that could not possibly be fulfilled. The master knew that he cannot pay it all. That's why he had pity on him, as we read in verse 27. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross. He died for us and paid our debts in order to release us free. He did all of this because he loved us, because of his compassion when he saw our distressed condition. He pitied him and his family and forgave him the whole debt. Verse 29, 28, But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. And here actually, uh, we can see his brutality. He forgot how the master was merciful on him. But, did not forgive his fellow servant. Yes, he was frightened when his master told him to be sold as a slave, but he did not change or repent. Hundred denarii equal sixteen to eighteen dollars. So his master forgave him by seven point five millions, and he doesn't want to forgive the other with sixteen to eighteen dollars. It's a smallness compared with his debt to the Master, is intended to show that our neighbors' sin against us are insignificant when contrasted with our sins toward God. He was treated with mercy, but he had no mercy on his fellow servant. So, let us see what his fellow servant said. Verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. I want you to notice that the same words that this servant said to his masters, exactly the same appeal was done with his fellow servant. But he refused to forgive him, as we read in verse 30. And he would not, but went to him, went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Maybe prison of negligence, prison of, prison of exclusion, 
presence of biting and gossiping, presence of hurting him back. Verse 31, so when his fellow servants, the angels, saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master God all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgive you all that debt, 7.5 millions, because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, $17, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So here actually we can see uh, how the Lord Jesus Christ conveyed the intolerable injustice and offensiveness which even the servants saw in this act of this uh, servant. Uh, we will make light of wronging our neighbor, for that is also, this also is sin against God. The sin here is not becoming merciful after we receive such mercy from God. If you receive such mercy from God, you should be merciful over others. And the Lord delivered him to the torturers until he pays, but he never could pay, so he is condemned to eternal punishment. So the Lord concluded and said, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. If we are hard and unforgiving to our fellow men, we can never expect our Heavenly Father to overlook our sins. So it is a vital doctrine that we, by our own mind toward others, determine what shall be the mind of Christ toward us. And there are many verses that says, as you treat others, God will treat you. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Matthew 5, 7. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Matthew 7, 2. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Matthew 6, 12. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Galatians 6, 7. So, the goodness and tolerance of God toward us is the pattern we should follow in our dealing with others. Our sins are great, and God freely forgives them. So the offenses committed against us by our brethren are comparatively small. That's why we should freely forgive them 
And if we do not forgive them, God will be justly angry with us and punish us. Forgiveness not merely in words, I say I forgive you, but really and truly to feel and act toward our brother as if he had not offended us at all. This concludes this chapter with the importance of forgiveness toward one another. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.